So thus far in December, here at Village Church, we've focused on four women who are tucked into Matthew's genealogy. The first was Tamar, the Canaanite widow of Judah's son who was left childless and forsaken. And although her father-in-law declares her more righteous than I, that's what he said of Tamar, it's difficult to find much righteousness in either her or her father-in-law. Then came Rahab, the Gentile prostitute. We don't have to say anything more about her than that. After her came Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabite uh, who was a part of a, an especially despised racial strain. And then came the unnamed mother of Solomon. Unnamed because just the mention of her name brought to mind murder, deception, adultery, lying, and a host of other evils. And today we finish with the mother of Jesus, Mary. Now once upon a time, it was the case that the Virgin Mary was a star in the Western world. Like a a rock star, I mean. She was so well known and so beloved that she was included in the telling of fairy tales like Cinderella. I'm sure you've heard of that one before. As we know the story, Cinderella was miraculously helped by her fairy godmother. Well, one of the earliest versions of this story actually has the Virgin Mary solving Cinderella's problems. Interesting. In no time, Cinderella was well-fed and had Prince Charming at her side, thanks to the Virgin Mary. There was a time, long ago, when most of the Christian world considered Mary a co-redeemer with Jesus Christ. The church pictured her as whispering words of mercy to counter Christ's harsh judgment. That was the job of Mary. Believers thought that Mary was born free of sin and never sinned throughout her life and then went to heaven and reigned there as queen of heaven, mother of God, source of mercy and grace. That's Mary. Well, the great Protestant Reformation, led by the likes of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ehrlich Zwingli, unveiled the truth of God's word and purged centuries of falsehood from Christianity, including the unbiblical exalting of Mary. But what was interesting is that in writing the ship called Christianity and directing us toward the grace offered only through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior on the cross, they, well, so to speak, threw the baby out with the bathwater. In other words, Mary was not only removed from fairy tales, but she's been removed from the vocabulary of faith. I doubt you've ever heard of a, Mar- uh, a sermon about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if you have, it, wasn't, it must have been a long ago. She's become, in our minds, persona non grata, unacceptable to esteem as a faith-filled follower of God, Mary. 
Just mentioning her name, looking at her story in Scripture, raises red flags for the hypervigilant. They are especially wary, I'm sure, of a sermon dedicated to her and are probably taking notes right now to make sure that we're on track. They're wary of falling into the old habit of elevating Mary beyond what the Bible says about her. But the Bible truth is that Mary was full of grace. That's what it says. Because God gifted her with grace. Mary was worthy of God's choosing because God's choosing made her worthy. Mary's song, The Magnificent, isn't how, about how great she was. It's about how great God is. Mary didn't merit her role as a mother of God. God chose Mary despite her loneliness and honored her beyond what she deserved. Surely there's no womb worthy of carrying the Son of God. The true message of the Christian story is that Mary heard the good news. The good news that a child was coming and she accepted God's grace toward her with extraordinary grace and faith. And as the great reformer Martin Luther himself said, Mary's true greatness lay in the greatness of her faith. This is what he said. The virgin had a faith of which there is no equal in the entire Bible. That's Martin Luther saying those words. As one writer, well, um, so Mary was an example, a model of Christian faith and life. And so we come to this New Testament drama, the opening drama of the, the New Testament canon, and the genealogy of Jesus told by Matthew. And we have been talking about the five mothers of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. And as one writer put it, one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he could find the most questionable ancestors of Jesus available. <laughs> You look into those, as we have done. And you ha- you're forced to ask yourself, why in the world has Matthew done this? Why has he deliberately added these women, in particular, to Jesus' genealogy? Maybe the answer can be found in the words spoken to the fifth woman on the list, Mary. Speaking of this fifth woman... Matthew says this, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's it right there. That's it. You read it? Jesus. That's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Joshua. And Joshua means God saves. God saves God saves his people from their sins. That's Mary's son. And who are his people, by the way, that he saves from their sins? What kind of people can God save with one born of Mary is the question we have to ask. Well, Matthew has just told us. People like Tamar, people like Rahab, people like Ruth, people like Bathsheba, people like David, people like 
you, people like me. He can save anyone, anyone who will believe. That's the good news. That's the Christmas story. Through these mothers of Jesus, Matthew proclaims the Messiah's mission. And it's completely different than what Jews were expecting of him. They were looking for a national deliverer, something like a Moses and David combined together, and even on a grander scale. He would deliver God's people from political enemies and from human oppressors. That's what they thought. But when the angel messenger spoke to Joseph about this child that his espoused wife Mary would bear by the Holy Spirit, he completely recast Jesus' mission in a true mold that was about his purpose from the very beginning of time, foretold in the Old Testament. He didn't come to save his people from Roman overlords. He came to save his people from their sins. In that sense, he did come as conquering king. He was conquering king. George Knight, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, says it well. He said, Jesus did not come to save people in their sins, but from their sins. Jesus is a liberator. Jesus liberates his people from the imperialism of their own sins, from the control of sins over their daily action. That is the deliverance that God gives us through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Because of his sinless life and his sacrificial death on the cross, he saves us from the penalty that we deserve, eternal death because of sin. I love the way Desire of Ages says it. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. That we might be justified, uh, then he suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was his. With his stripes we are healed. Jesus came to conquer the power of sin. Conquer the power of sin in my life, in your life. And when he returns in the clouds of heaven, he'll even save us from the presence of sin within us. Now Mary must have anticipated huge challenges with her calling. I'm sure there was boundless joy. I'm sure there was great amazement when she learned that she would be the mother of the Redeemer. But that joy, I'm sure, would have been tempered by the horror of the scandal that awaited her. I'm sure she was aware. Luke records how the visit of the angel stirred her heart. He says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And later, in verse number 34, Mary says, how will this be to the angel? Since I'm a virgin, still knowing the cost of, of, of weighing in against the immense privilege of becoming the mother of Christ, Mary, Mary surrendered. Unconditional faith gave herself. She said in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. 
May your word to me be fulfilled. She was willing to surrender and obey to divine love. Now, there's no mention in Scripture that Mary brooded over what her untimely pregnancy would bring her, but certainly she thought of it. She instantly, humbly, joyfully submitted to God's will, yes. And it's hard to imagine a more faith-filled, mature response than Mary had right there. But Matthew and Luke use different words, but they both affirm the same, that Mary's son would be conceived of the Holy Spirit. Matthew says, verse one, chapter 1, verse 20, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke says, the Holy Spirit talking to Mary, the angel talking to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And even Jesus, later on in his ministry, confirmed his supernatural birth in conversation with the group of religious leaders who were questioning his authority. He said to them, John chapter 8, verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So even Jesus acknowledged he was both human and divine. Matthew 1, verse 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. Matthew claims that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Perhaps, perhaps, that's the greatest claim in the New Testament. God with us. Jesus. Jesus isn't merely a great teacher, although he was. He wasn't just a guru or a seer. Nor is he just God's messenger in the sense that Muhammad was a messenger of Allah. No, Jesus is something more. Jesus is God with us. God with us. He isn't God above us like, he, like God pictured, is pictured in, in the Old Testament. That God, that thundering God, that lightning God, that powerful God, that unapproachable God, that God that is, is so uh, uh, powerful that were you just to touch, touch the Ark of the Covenant, you would die. The picture that, that, that of, that's presented of God in the first chapter of the New Testament is a fuller revelation of who God is. He's no longer the, the God who is above us, but he is the God who is present with us. He is the God among us. He is God with us. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is the offspring of Mary, yes. And he doesn't tie it at all to Joseph. In fact, he makes quite an effort to make sure that we know that Joseph is not the father. Notice his words. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. As one author put it, 
a commentator on this verse, said, Mary is the subject of only one active verb in Matthew's birth narrative. She bore. Joseph had nothing to do with it. Six times that's repeated. She bore. Mary is the mother of Jesus. Matthew's genealogy traces Jesus' lineage through men, through Abraham and David and and 40-plus other men in Joseph's line. But when he comes to Jesus, Matthew switches. Interestingly, switches. George Knight, again in his commentary, has this to say, and he says it very succinctly. Matthew concludes the earthly pedigree of Jesus by subtly shifting the line of thought from Joseph to Mary, the only human parent of Jesus. Then, as if to accent this conundrum, um, Matthew records how Joseph was resolved to continue his marriage plans although not the father of this child, where it says in verse 24 and 25, when Joseph woke up after he had heard what the angel said, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. In other words, if we were just to put that, take it out of code language, it says this, Joseph adopts Jesus as his son. So Matthew is just saying plainly that Mary is the baby's mother and God is the baby's father. Now, I know that doesn't make us gasp, but it ought to. It ought to make us gasp. Miracle of miracles. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus through his preaching, through his teaching, through his healing acts, through his kindness, becomes the fullest picture of who God is. He is God among us. As Jesus said of himself, anyone has seen me has seen the Father. Paul said it beautifully in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Christ Jesus, who by being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very appearance as a man, I mean, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, there we have it. In Mary's child, we have God with us, Messiah, the child born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, one whose mission was to save his people from their sins. The story of Mary, one author said, and the birth of the Christ child is the most holy story in Scripture. That God would be made in human flesh to save us. Just let your mind rest there for a minute and really think about that. Draw deeply from that well of mercy and grace. Mary 
joyfully submits to God's will. There's no record that there's any doubt or any question. Although young, she's a woman of mature faith. And now filled with joy and bubbling over with praise, Mary hurriedly goes to the hill country to visit her relative, her beloved older relative, Elizabeth. She's not leaving Nazareth, however, because she's embarrassed. She's not leaving for fear of shame because of her premature pregnancy. No, not at all. Maybe, maybe she's seeking a kindred spirit. Someone to share her heart with. Because during the visit of the angel to Mary, the angel had told her that Baron Elizabeth, in her old age, had been also supernaturally blessed with a child. So Mary and Elizabeth would both be encouraged by God's goodness. And so she goes. And when Elizabeth sees Mary, the first thing out of her mouth is exactly what the angel said to Mary. Blessed are you among women, she said, Elizabeth to Mary. And then she added, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How did she know? And finally, she addressed Mary as the mother of my Lord. Hmm. And Mary, when she heard those words, you know what happened. She erupted in jubilant song. It's become known as the Magnificat. That taken from the first word that came from Mary's mouth in that song of praise. She said, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What a jubilant song that Mary lifts up and pours forth from her heart. It's really just the word of God being repeated. She quotes from Hannah's prayer. She quotes from Old Testament books of Moses. She quotes from the Psalms of David. She quotes from the prophets Isaiah, Malachi, and Micah. It was, it was heart worship. Mary's consumed in the wonder of God's grace toward her. She's amazed that the holy God would do such a great thing for, for someone as undeserving as she was. Mary knew that she was a sinner, but she was a sinner saved by God's grace who had hungered for God's goodness and been filled. That's Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's interesting that during Jesus' ministry, we only hear of Mary in three scenes. Once at the wedding of Cana, when Jesus performed his first miracle. And at that time, Mary attempts to ask Jesus for a miraculous favor to get her friend out of a tight spot. But Jesus is kind but clear. (laughs) He will not be taking directions in ministry or miracles from Mary. She may have been Jesus' mother, but Jesus was her Lord. The second appearance came at a time when Jesus' ministry was burgeoning. Huge crowds were being attracted and there was a lot of negative press 
happening as well. The demands of ministry were so great, Jesus hardly had time to even stop to eat. You can read it in Mark chapter number 3. And some of the religious leaders were accusing him of devil possession. Jesus, of devil possession. Mary and some of her close relatives, her her children, they were concerned about Jesus' well-being. And Mark 3 tells what happened. Verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. (laughs) Jesus will not be interrupted. He will not allow himself to be sidetracked. As always, Jesus must be about his father's business. Jesus didn't need to consult Mary for that. Mary was learning. Mary was growing. She was understanding her role. And it wasn't to control him but it was to submit to him as Lord. I love love the way that one author put it. She no doubt was beginning to know that for those who live the life of the Spirit, the human family bond is transcended by a wider love. How true that is. How true that is. Mary became one of the most faithful disciples of Jesus following him all the way, all the way to the cross. It may be, it may be that Mary had an inkling that something hard like this would be faced by Jesus. Something bad would be his fate. It may be that she sensed that. It was no doubt one of the painful things that she kept inside ever since his infancy. Luke records that truth that Mary pondered these things in her heart and when Jesus, only a newborn infant, eight days old, Mary and Joseph took him into the temple to dedicate him and Simeon, the righteous, devout follower of God was there waiting, it says in scripture, for the consolation of Israel. Israel. He sees Mary and Joseph with baby Jesus come into the temple, takes the baby from their arms, lifts him up, and praises God for him, and then turns to Mary and says this, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and will be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Standing at Golgotha, witnessing her son, being nailed to the cross. Watching a soldier thrust his spear into Jesus' side. She must have sensed that that sword had pierced her own heart as well. Simeon's prophecy came home with full force. Mary sobbed. She sobbed as others screamed wicked taunts at her son. Imagine her sense of injustice. It must have been profound. Who better understood Jesus and his sinless perfection than Mary? 
She had nurtured him since he was an infant. She had brought him up through childhood. No one could have loved Jesus more than Mary loved, loved him. The pain of Mary's anguish is unimaginable. Yet she stood. She stood while others shrieked in horror, while others collapsed in distress. Mary stood because maybe she understood. Maybe she understood that her steadfast presence in this dreaded moment was what she could give to Jesus. I love the way one author described Mary's heart. Because she bore nobly such loneliness, such heartache at the foot of the cross, countless people down through the centuries in moments of anguish and pain have found comfort. Mary's silent endurance of what she could not change is her great lesson at the cross to the world. It was. But although she suffered, her suffering, her personal suffering, did not bring her merit It did not make her a conduit of merit for anyone today. As Paul said, clearly, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is sin bearer. Jesus alone is Savior and Lord. His death on the cross, His resurrection from the grave, His intercession in heaven now is our path of mercy and grace. And it was that grace that came to Mary's aid when the last human tie was being broken. There on the cross, Jesus, already in the throes of death, gazes and finds Mary among the group. And in some of his last words, In his greatest hour of agony, he didn't forget his mother. He said, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. I'm amazed that one of Jesus' last acts on earth before giving his life for our lives was to make sure that his mother would be cared for the rest of her life. Again, one author says that that act epitomizes Mary's relationship with her firstborn son. She was his earthly mother, but he was her eternal Lord. As mother, she had once provided all his needs, but in the ultimate and eternal sense, he was her savior, her provider. Well, Mary, she's like no other mother like no other. For Christian mothers, it's a a weighty task to train children for heaven, for sure. But Mary's son, he was creator and Lord of heaven and earth. Over time, especially witnessing Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Mary became a disciple. Mary became a worshiper. And Now she wasn't so conscious of her own motherhood as she was the divine sonship of Jesus. 
After Jesus' death, Mary is mentioned one time. This is the third time she's mentioned in the New Testament after Jesus uh, began his ministry. And she's mentioned among the group that is praying in the upper room at Pentecost. She's the only woman mentioned. She would now be of service for the early church, a true disciple. Of all the women mentioned in Scripture, honorable or not, Mary's got to be the best. She's got to be the best. No woman could be as remarkable as her. I mean, she was the one, she was the one sovereignly chosen by God from among all the women who have ever lived, who have ever been born, to be the singular instrument which God would at last bring his Messiah to earth. Mary was the recipient of the greatest and still most unexplained miracle, the birth of Jesus Christ, virgin birth, born of the Holy Spirit. One author said it this way, this has been no better explained in 2,000 years than has the origin of the sun, moon, and stars. I agree. (laughs) There are attempts, but they don't come close. She's unique in the history of humanity, in the history of women. Her story is the story of Scripture. Her son would bring salvation to the earth, Mary. Now, Mary never never claimed any more than she confessed in her Magnificat that she was the humble servant of God, humble servant of God. And that simple spirit of humility colored everything in Mary's life and character. She's, in my estimation, certainly a woman to emulate but not venerate. Her life and testimony point us continually to Jesus Christ. He was the object of her worship. He was the one she recognized as Lord and Savior. He was the one she trusted for everything. And Mary's example, I think, teaches us to do the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the story of Mary This one singled out for the greatest miracle of all to bear our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God with us. Her quiet faith, her reassurance of your love and care, her amazing commitment is an example to us that that we would be well to follow. And so we do, Lord. We We want to have that same faith. We want to have that same love, that that same devotion, that same unswerving trust in you today, every day, always, until you come. And we pray it all in the mighty name, the faithful name of our soon-coming Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.